Hey, this is Matthew Christensen of Christensen Knifeworks, and you're listening to the Blade Allergy Podcast. jump into it like we do every week welcome to another episode of the bladeology podcast we are on this week with a very special guest happy to have on um my name is uh jeremiah burbank from pvk vegas and and who do we have on this week uh this is richard wright initially i was doing a gun show in rhode island with a friend of mine that had a gun shop and uh once we got set up i was walking around and i see this old guy that had some uh custom-made knives, and that was something new to me. I'd never been exposed to custom knives before. It was, uh, I'd heard of them, but never had any exposure to them. So I go over there, and here's this old guy with long hair and a beard, kind of looks like Gandalf from Lord of the Rings. And uh, I'm looking at some of the stuff that he's got, and I mean, like I say, this was all new to me, and I was blown away by what he had. And I, I picked up his business card, and name on the business card was William J. McHenry, and Turned out he lived about five miles down the road from where I lived. He had moved over here from Newport, Rhode Island. So we struck up a little conversation at the show. And, you know, I ended up uh, about a week later, I took a ride up to his house to to meet him. And uh, from there on, we just uh, really, we kind of really meshed. We, we guy was like a brother to me. We uh, had a, ended up with a very, very good, strong friendship over the years. And, uh, his background when he got started making knives was he was a jeweler. And he had, when he, after he got divorced, he'd moved out to Rhode Island and he figured he'd make custom jewelry. And uh, he ended up uh, visiting his sister down in Florida. And her boyfriend dragged him to a knife show. And that was where he got bitten. He was looking at this stuff and he goes, Now I know what I'm going to do. And he'd probably been doing it for about a year or so when I met him. And uh, so one thing kind of led to another. Like I said, his background was as a jeweler. Mine was as a machinist, a tool maker, and a welder. And so we just started trading ideas back and forth. At that time, his stepson, uh, Jason Williams, was going to school basically for, uh, it was a tech school, I believe. He was training as a machinist, you know, basic machine shop, high school. Well, not, I don't think it was, I think it was past high school. I'm not sure, but, you know, basic course. And uh, so we, you know, Bill started getting educated in machine shop to a certain extent. I mean, he had no concept of drilling and tapping holes. At the time, he was, going to a hardware store and buying little nuts and bolts to screw his knives together with. And uh, he, he did a pretty good job of dressing them up. They looked pretty good considering what they were. But but anyway, uh, one thing led to another, and we ended up uh, teaching each other an awful lot. And uh, he was the one that got me started making knives. And uh, I'd probably been friends with him for probably about four or five years before I actually got into it. Uh, you know, I was always stopping by the house to see what he'd see what his latest project was, and you know, shoot the shit, and come up there one day, and uh, he had just finished making. Actually, it was the first custom switchblade I'd ever seen, uh, black, uh, almost an Italian style, not quite, but uh, that kind of that kind of a look to it. And uh, in fact, I don't even think it had a cross guard now that I think back on it, but. Uh, the release mechanism was like a Hubertus uh, lever lock, you know, the German knives. And, of course, everybody's all blown away by that. You know, I mean, everybody, you know, there was I was there and 
you know, his stepson, of course, and there was a couple of other guys that were visiting. And, you know, of course, everybody's just in awe of this thing that he made. And Bill, he's like five or six steps ahead of everybody else. He's always, always thinking outside the box and thinking down the road a ways. And he says, yeah, he says, that's okay. He says, but, you know, he says, we need something with a trick mechanism, something that doesn't look like a switchblade. Because this was back, well, I want to say this was in the late 80s. And uh, 88, 89, maybe, something like that. And uh, at that time, you know, if you were a knife show and you had switchblades, you kind of had to, you couldn't put them on the table. You had to sell them out, you know, under the table or meet somebody out in the hall or something like that. You know, they didn't want you flashing them around on the show. And But uh, that was kind of where we started off with that. And we were tossing a lot of ideas around. We'd always sit around and have a bullshit session that, happened quite a few times and at the time uh i well at that time i'd been a gunsmith for probably about 20 years i'd been doing it for quite a while uh, and uh i was doing a trigger job on a 45 one night and i'm at work the next day and of course i'm daydreaming about million, making switchblades and i'd been thinking about the trigger job and just i came up with an idea on how to a new release mechanism for the blade so i made a quick mock-up and uh just before I lost track of the idea. And I stopped up to his house that night after work and I showed him what I had. And it was it was very crude. It was just a couple of pieces of sheet metal nailed to a piece of wood to show how everything would kind of work. And so he looks at it and he says, well, he says, I think you might be onto something here. And I says, well, I says, you're the knife maker. I said, you know, do something with it. And uh, I want to say that was late, late in the summer. Of, I want to say it was 1989. And, uh, I didn't hear any more about it, and we had a credit union crisis here in Rhode Island. Everybody woke up January 1st of 19, I believe it was 1990, and uh, all the credit unions were locked down. Some guy had been embezzling money, and it was a, it was a real mess. And so he couldn't get at his money, he couldn't pay his bills, couldn't pay his mortgage, couldn't take any money out of the bank, couldn't write any checks, couldn't do anything. So he calls his collector up that he knows, and he tells him, hey, I got this new revolutionary switchblade mechanism, and you can have the first one, but you got to pay me for it now because I can't get up my money. So he does that, He does that, and he starts building this knife, and I don't know how much time went by, maybe a couple of weeks, and because I didn't find out about this until after the fact. And so he calls me up, and he says, hey, he says, I got that new mechanism, but I want you to, I want to stop by with it and have you take a look at it and see if you can do some welding on it for me. So he brings the thing up, and uh, I forget exactly what the problem was. I think maybe the the blade was proud, which means the point was sticking up out of the case a little bit when you locked it in. And uh, so he showed me what he had, and we took it apart and played with it, and I did some welding on it, and you know we fixed that part. And at that time, it was just a right-handed only mechanism, but uh, that was the first bolster release that. Uh, that he had made, and it was based, you know, basically kind of on the concept that I had. So we started uh, kind of collaborating on him, him and him and Jason and I. And he had, you know, we were, I was basically rough, rough machining the parts and getting, getting the blades cut out and getting the mechanics of the mechanism up and running. And uh, him and Jason were grinding the blades and doing the file work and doing all the finish work and heat treating on everything. And we built probably, I want to say around 15 or 20 of them. It wasn't that many. And that was probably sometime during 1990, 1991. 
And at that time, I was still working and still doing, uh, I was still doing quite a bit of gunsmithing. I was doing a lot of competitive shooting at that time. And uh, so finally, he says, yeah, he says, I think I'm all done with this. I'm going to just go back to making my, you know, my custom knives again. And he says, you should stop making knives. You got this figured out anyway. And so that was kind of what spurred me on to go off on my own and start doing what I was doing. And I want to say probably about the third, the first 30, maybe 35 knives that I made were all based on the original shape. The The first one that he had designed kind of had the look of a buck 110. It was kind of a traditional American looking, you know, kind of a Western looking switchblade as far as a profile was concerned. And uh, so all of my knives were based on that profile. I kind of stuck with that until I'd made enough of them so I was comfortable with uh, going off with a new design and, you know, different profile. And my first knife, uh, that first first switchblade that I made was made in 1991. So, you know, I just kind of kept moving forward from then on. And uh, here, I, here I am today. I think I've made 326 or 27. It was 327 folding knives that I've made since I started. I serial number every one. So that's the only reason I know that. So everyone has a, has a unique number. And would you say that each one is, is, is a, a variation on theme, but each one is different, would you say, in the dress style? The majority, well, the majority of them were all one of a kind. Even the first 35, even though they were based on the same profile, you know, I would vary blade material, handle material. I do a little few tweaks on the, on the profile. And then once I got past that, I was just starting off with a blank piece of paper every time and designing a new knife. And I got into I got into a run of tactical knives for a while. I probably made about I don't know, probably less than a hundred. I'm going to say maybe seventy five or eighty tactical knives. And some of those were switchblades, some of those were flippers, and because uh, that's kind of the way the trend went for a while. And I kind of uh, just uh, got into doing that because that's what was selling and that's what people were wanting. And, uh, right. Yeah. Go with the market, whatever people want, right. Whatever people want to pay for. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, well, I was, you know, I was still, I don't want to say in its infancy, but I was still learning. And, uh, you know, when the trends change, like I did the blade show starting from right around 2000, I think it was 1999 or 2000, I think was when I did the first blade show. And I did that for about 10 years straight. And I, I had a pretty good show every year i always i didn't have a lot of knives i'd get on there with maybe four or five six knives and i'd pretty much sell everything that i bought and the last blade show that i did was just about the time the economy was starting to take a nosedive and i didn't sell anything and it was there was a combination of several things going on uh the economy for one but all of a sudden the whole tactical trend was taken off and that's kind of what was selling. You saw an awful lot of that stuff down there. You know, everybody was making black knives. That's kind of what I referred to them as. But uh, so I came home from the blade show with everything that I'd taken down there just about. I had I had some other oddball stuff that I'd collected over the years that I sold and made enough money to pay for the table and stuff. But to me, the show was a bust. And uh, so I uh, had to, I kind of had to regroup at that time and so I decided I was going to get into doing tacticals for a while. So, sorry when when you say black knife, I'm assuming you're, you're so you're saying that the more use of um like uh, aluminum and and sort of titanium and steels and less of the of the natural materials. Yeah, they were, they were basically tactical knives. It's 
you know, your, your steals, you, most of your steals were, you know, were, were uh, you know, high-tech stainlesses, you know, high-carbon stainless steels. Your handle material was usually black macarter or car- carbon fiber or something like that. And, you know, I, I just kind of refer to them as black knives, the way people refer to AR-15s and stuff as black rifles, you know. But uh, but that's just, uh, that's how the trend went. And, then, you know, it went for quite a while. And uh, I've made, like I say, I made quite a few of those over the years. And then uh, I started getting a little bit of a demand for my older work. You know, a couple of people, when you're going to start making your old, you know, the stuff you used to make again. And so that was what uh, got me back into doing it now. And, uh, you know, plus I had some family issues. I was probably out of the knife making field for, well, I don't want to say five or six years before. Well, I wasn't doing much at the time and I kind of got back into it now. The collaboration that that sort of that sparked you to really dive in deep um, with with Bill and and Jason. So that was that was a what, what we now look at as a traditional uh, bolster release. Um, yeah. Do you remember? Do you remember the name of the model? Did you have a name for it? No, I wasn't big on naming knives. Bill could Bill could come up with a name for every knife that he ever made, <laughs> and I just yeah, I just there you go. I just serial numbered them. <laughs> That works. You know what? That, that works. Okay. But everyone was, you know, everyone was different until I got into the tactical stuff and that stuff, uh, you know, I was making kind of this, the same style and shape knife for a while. I had several different models that I'd made. I think I ended up making nine different models of tactical knives. Some of them, you know, were more popular than others. You didn't come into this totally blind. So you did have some, some machining knowledge. You were, you were gunsmithing, so you did you have a, a shop of your own, or did you work at a gunsmith shop? I've been playing around with guns since I was a little kid. Uh, when I got out of the service, I started working as a machinist, and I started shooting competitively. I couldn't afford to have somebody do custom work on my handguns. At the time, I did a lot of forty-five shooting, so I started working on my own guns, and uh, one thing led to another, and I think at one time I had five gun shops I was doing work for. I ended up getting an FFL so because I had to have that to legally take possession of somebody's gun to work on it. And I did a lot of that over the years. Uh, yeah, I was kind of blessed when I got into the knife making end of it because I had I had a lot of usable skills that I could, you know, that I could apply to, to the knife making. The mechanical end of it has never been a real big, I don't want to call it a, it's it's never been a really big problem for me as far as the mechanical end of it. It's been a little bit of a challenge from one knife to another, trying to get everything to fit and work properly. But uh, my my shortfall has always been design work. I mean, Bill McHenry could sit down with a, with a sketch pad on his couch, you know, with a beer in one hand and sit down and design a knife in 10 minutes and come up with something with a really unique look. And that would take me hours to do. And, you know, I just, he had a talent for it. The guy was an artist. He was, he was a, very, 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 very talented individual. I was a genius as far as I was concerned, but, uh, but that, that was my shortfall was the design work. So that's always been a kind of a stretch for me, but, uh, ah, you know, there's always, there's always uh, strengths and weaknesses uh, and everything, but it sounds like you, at least mechanically you came into this, um, a step ahead. Yeah, we, uh, we uh, kind of, you know, took a quantum leap, for, leap forward with the bolster release mechanism because nobody had ever seen anything like that before. I think there were, Later on, I had seen some other knives that worked off of a bolster release, but it wasn't the same mechanism. The, the, I saw some where the bolster was actually uh, silver soldered to the back bar, and it was like a lockback. 
set up and but it was just right-handed and uh you know it was everybody kind of took a different slant on it you know i've always had i've always said that uh knife makers you know we all do the same thing but we all do it differently so yeah variations on an idea there right you see one person do it you change it a little for your own style this mechanism that, that that you guys are working on with bill is uh was probably one of the first of its kind i believe so but uh i know one of the projects we did was uh he had some guy i don't know that much detail about the guy from what i understand he was a european banker and he had a real big estate up on one of the uh finger lakes in michigan and the guy for a while i guess he was buying everything bill made and uh so we decided to build the biggest switchblade that we could figure out how to make so we made this thing that bill called the valkyrie and it was a real he did all the design work on it the thing was uh I want to say the blade was around 15 or 16 inches long. And I think the whole knife, when it was completely open, was around 36 or 37 inches. And it had a a separate blade that folded out of the back of it. He referred to it as the tail because it was more of a a spike. And uh, he had uh, the scales on the things were made from almost a full-size impala horn. The thing was huge. And uh, the front and rear bolsters, because it was a it was a bolster release switchblade, and uh, the front and rear bolsters he had carved up out of uh, wax and had castings made out of bronze, and then he did all the detail work on the castings, you know, carved those all up and everything. And I got pictures of it around here somewhere, but that thing was uh, that was uh, something that the three of us worked on, uh, him and I, and a guy named Ralph Silvideo. Wow, I can't I can't imagine that's a it's a large knife. Yeah, <laughs> that's it was, a, it's a big one. It was a real far out fantasy knife, and it was an auto. So I mean, you 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 pulled the bolster on that thing. I mean, that thing must have cracked open. Yeah, well, well, it would actually. We that was one of the things that Bill was kind of. Uh, how do I put this? He, I don't want to say that he stressed it, but he said one of the signs of a good switchblade is when you open it up, it doesn't want to jump out of your hand. It should open up almost a little on the lazy side. You know, you want the thing to open up. You know, you want it to open up with a little bit, of, a little bit of snap. But like you see, a lot of these older Italian knives, you open them up and the things want to, they, they almost want to jump out of your hand. They're very oversprung, and uh, that was one of the things that he got into was if you had everything fitting properly, you had a good, you had a good pivot fit, and you didn't have too much drag on the blade, and everything you could get away with a, you know, with a fairly light kick spring, and I mean it would open a little bit of snap, but it wouldn't. Uh, like I say, it didn't want to jump out of your hand. And that was the whole thing. He always called it balance, balancing the mechanism. You balance your spring and your blade weight and everything else. And uh, a lot of it was trial and error. But uh, that was the whole thing was to get them, get them to open with just enough force so that you knew it was opening and a little bit of a snap to it. But uh, not so much that it wanted to jump out of your hands. But uh, one of the advantages of that, too, is knives that are over. He was referred to it as being oversprung would uh they have a tendency to wear out they they put a lot of stress on the on all the parts on the pivot on the back bar you know everything gets beat up pretty good so yeah there's a lot of force at work there when when that blade uh jumps out too fast yeah that's true you know interesting so that's i mean that's that sounds i would love to if you ever come across pictures send them over i'd love to see pictures of that i'll uh, Um, I'll, uh, i'll dig those out and email them to you yeah, that that'd be cool. Uh, I'd love to love to post them up. Um, 
which which brings me to another question. So, I mean, you, you were telling me that um, so you've built 300-something knives. Um, what, I mean, do you have records of these knives? I know I talk to makers, and sometimes, you know, they're kind of bummed they don't take more pictures in the early days. Um, I mean, uh, what, what kind of catalog do you have of these knives? Well, what I did when I first started making knives, I didn't have a computer. I, I, had, I took some pictures with just a 35-millimeter camera, and... I don't know, it was around number 34 or 35 that I ended up getting a computer and a digital camera. And I started just, I just started doing a photographic record of everything that I made. I wanted it so that I could, you know, go back and look at it and, you know, kind of review what I had done a year or so later and take, you know, just see what things look like. And it was, to me, it was a good way to keep a record. And I just started doing that. And I, uh, I've got a, a whole shitload of pictures on my computer. <laughs> I mean that's that's good though. It's good to have it's good to have a record because you know yeah. so many times makers lose track of these knives. You know I mean which is not that's sort of like it's like they're like kids. You build them and then they just wander off and they end up in someone's collection and you never see them again. You know which is great but it's also unfortunate. Well that's the thing too is a lot of guys, you know, they want to get their knives professionally photographed but that gets a little pricey after a while. You know, you're talking a couple hundred bucks a knife. I've had that done with a few of them and, uh, you know, get pictures published and stuff like that. But uh, I got to the point when I started doing the digital photography that I could do a, a decent enough job that I was happy with it. It was uh, actually I've had a lot of those pictures published, too. But uh, I did it primarily, like I say, just so I'd have a photographic record of, uh, of what I'd made. No, I mean, that's that's well, that's smart. Um I also. OK, so I, I wanted to jump back. Uh, you said that you were in the service. Um you got um, you must you got a little machining knowledge from being in the service. What which branch of the service were you in? I was in the Air Force. I was at a I was at an F four training base, uh, the Mojave Desert. I ended up staying there for four years. I was in a uh, field maintenance outfit. The building that I was in had a machine shop, a welding shop, a corrosion control shop, which was primarily painting. They did a little bit of electroplating, and uh, a sheet metal shop and I managed to learn a little bit of everything in there in the four years and uh, four years I was there. Plus, uh, I, I ended up going to tool and die school in the uh, Chinook uh, Air Force Base in Illinois. And uh, I took it upon myself to, uh, there was a local community college and they were given a welding course. So I took a couple of, couple of welding courses. So I had a somewhat of an idea on how to weld. And then I managed to get loaned to the weld shop for a while because they were short on personnel. A couple of people got shipped out and they were short on people. So I, uh, we never, we never actually welded on, well, I, I never, I never welded on anything that actually went on an air aircraft. We did a lot of support, uh, support stuff, you know, trailer hitches and stuff like that and brackets. And, but, uh, I learned an awful lot. There was a good, uh, it was the best school I ever went to. Let's put it that way. I was, you know, to me, it was like four years of college. I was very fortunate. I learned an awful lot. I would imagine that the Mojave Desert was a bit of a of a shock from from Rhode Island. Oh, it was unbelievable. I got out there in uh, June of '68, and I got there. By the time I arrived at the base, it was late in the day. It was probably about eight o'clock at night. Of course, it was still light out, and uh, it was comfortably warm it was probably about 80 85 degrees but there was zero humidity so it wasn't bad 
I get up the next morning to start processing into base. And by nine o'clock in the morning, it's like 106 degrees. And then it got hot every day, every day during the summer out there, it was 100 and, 105, 110 degrees every day. And if the wind blew, it was a hot wind, no shade, no trees. And, uh, it was, uh, it was a very different climate than what I had been, uh, raised in. Took me a long time to adapt to the heat. That was tough. Yeah. That's like, that's powerful heat. I, I definitely, I remember my, my, my first full year in, in Las Vegas was oh, yeah. a bit of a shock. It was yep, hot. It was about, especially when you come from new England, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's something that, uh, you can kind of, it kind of only can experience that. Yeah. The, when, it, when the wind blows, it's more like a hairdryer than anything else. Yeah. <laughs> Just like blowing you in the face at like a hundred degrees. It's not, it's not refreshing at all. Yeah. I was about 200 miles South of Vegas. Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah. That's, that's like, that's deep. That's deep desert. That's proper desert. Yeah. yeah about, uh, about halfway between Barstow and San Bernardino. So the town that was there oh, okay. was Vic- Victorville. I know the, the Oh, Victorville. Has, okay. Yeah. The base has since been shut down. Yeah. I guess Victorville has turned into a pretty big city now from what I understand, but. I mean, I couldn't speak to what it used to be, but it's certainly, yeah, it's a sizable for its location now. So what, what spurred you into the service? Just that it was that time or you wanted to get out of Rhode Island? Well, a little bit of both. It was Vietnam War going on. I figured I was going to get drafted anyway. And uh, I had a gentleman that I worked for when I was a kid, ran a backhoe service, uh, a guy named Ray Hazard. And he had, uh, he'd been in the Navy during World War II in Korea. And of course, at the time, I was all convinced, had myself all talked in. I was going to Marine Corps, you know, I was, I was going to go be a badass. And uh, he was like, what the fuck do you want to do that for? He says, if you're going to go into a branch of the service, he was going to something that's going to teach you something. Otherwise, you're just going to waste your time. He's the only thing you're going to learn how to do in a Marine Corps is shoot a rifle. And you already know how to do that. And the Army's not much better. He says, go in the Navy or the Air Force. And I had a lot of respect for the guy. He was like a second father to me. So... I, of course, you know, where I grew up was a real, real small one-horse town, literally. It was, uh, there wasn't much around here. There wasn't much opportunity. And I kind of wanted to get out and see what the rest of the world was like anyway. So, so that was what got me into the Air Force. And uh, I did my basic in Amarillo up in North Texas. Man, you want to talk about landing in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Amarillo is not, yeah. Yeah, that was a good experience. I learned a lot and I got to see and do a lot of things, so. Yeah, no, I mean, it certainly led to a, a a lifetime of knowledge. That that guy was absolutely right. That was excellent advice. What about a little bit of your of your growing up in Rhode Island? How, how you say one horse town? Well, the Main Street n- never got paved until after World War II. I think Main Street, Carolina, which is Route One Twelve, was paved around forty six or forty seven, and at that time there were a lot of secondary roads around here that weren't paved. Uh, I grew up in a small village. It was an old uh, textile mill town at the time. You know, it was, of course, that that went out of business during the Depression. But uh, uh, my grandfather owned a car dealership and two working farms. So I spent uh, a little bit of time at the car dealership learning how to change tires and sweep the floor and that kind of stuff. And I spent a lot of time picking up baled hay and throwing it on the back of a truck and then loading it into a barn. And Hell, I think I was. I think he had me driving a tractor when I was about nine or ten years old, and uh, baling hay and stuff. And did a lot of that during the summer. Did a lot. Did a lot of shooting. A lot of hunting. Uh, spent a lot of time in the woods. Uh, it was, you know, I didn't really appreciate it at the time. I didn't. 
I look back on it now and realized I had a very good childhood. But when you're, you know, living in a little one horse town, you don't, uh, you know, you always want to go to the city and see the big, big things and go to the movies and stuff like that. And there was none of that around here. And of course, you know, back then the TV reception around here, you had three channels with, a, you know, if you were lucky, you had an antenna on the roof. It was either that or rabbit ears and reception wasn't very good. So there wasn't, wasn't much in the line of TV that you could, that was really watchable. I mean, occasionally you'd get something decent, but a lot of that was dependent on the weather. But, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, kind of a typical country childhood, you know, a lot of Norman Rockwell kind of thing, I guess you'd say. Those are some good, those are some good paintings. So that's, that's not a bad, that's not a bad way to, to visualize it. So, I mean, okay. So, so guns were, guns were part of your, part of your life from the very beginning. Yeah. I started shooting when I was five years old. And I think by the time I was seven or eight years old, I was pretty much turned loose, you know, on my own with a 22 rifle. I didn't, uh, not that I didn't have any supervision, but, uh, you know, we grew up different back then. We were a lot more, you know, in my view, we were a lot more responsible and, uh, we handled a lot more, uh, responsibility. I know, uh, I was working with somebody at the garage, my grandfather's garage, and they were junking cars. And I was probably 10 or 12 years old. And, you know, I'm out there, you know, with a cutting torch, cutting up, cutting up cars and junking them. I mean, you don't see any, you know, you don't see kids doing that kind of stuff today at that age. And by that time, I'd already been doing it for a while. But I was exposed to a lot of stuff, you know, when I had, uh, I had an aunt that had horses. I did a little bit of horseback riding. I, that was all part of, you know, life on the farm. But uh, they had one one farm that was uh, agricultural. They grew hay over there and potatoes and stuff like that, corn. And uh, the other farm was uh, dairy farm and chickens and pigs and that kind of stuff. And so it was uh, a lot of work. It was, uh, you know, I didn't appreciate the work as a kid. I would rather be off doing something else, but uh, yeah. Taught me a lot. I learned, got a lot out of it. Yeah, sometimes it it's the perspective, right? Everybody wants to sort of get away from they grew up, but you know, when they're away long enough, then they start missing it. Yeah, well, the thing is, when, once you got something to relate to, then you realize how good or bad it was. It wasn't that it was all good and it wasn't all bad, but it was, it was, you know, I got a lot out of it. So this, so you, so you went to, a, <clears throat> excuse me, you went to a, a gun show and you met you met Bill. Um, and you were saying that, so that was, that was pretty much your first exposure to sort of this, this, these custom knives. And, um, and then you, you and Bill made a fast friendship. Um, you know, Bill McHenry is certainly famous in, in our industry for, for a couple mechanisms. Um, certainly the access lock and, um, and the out the front mechanism, um, on the Benchmade Infidel, but the access lock, I think. Which came first? Oh, the Axis Lock was the first one that he did. And uh, <clears throat> actually, the Infidel was the last one. He did the Axis Lock first. And uh, that was kind of an interesting story right there because Benchmade had contacted, uh, well, actually, he had contacted, he had hooked up with Benchmade. I'm getting my stories mixed up here. But he'd gotten mixed up with Benchmade uh, initially and showed him, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the access lock mechanism and he had already had it patented. So he basically got hooked up with them on that. And then he started working for them as a, uh, as a consultant, you know, they'd, uh, 
he did a lot of consulting with the original axis lock to show him how to make it and get all the bugs out of it for manu- for manufacturing. And then he come up with another mechanism that he called a, uh, I'm brain dead tonight, uh, levitator. And he'd built this uh, little thing that he called a bench mite. They called it a bench mite. It was a little short pocket knife. You could put it on a keychain. had about an inch and a quarter blade. And it was sheet metal construction. And on one side of the sheet metal, it was all cut out or stamped out in such a manner there was a little pad on there. And when you pushed on the pad, the other end of it lifted up and there was a pin on it. And the pin would unlock the blade so that you could open it. And when it was fully open, then it would drop back down into a second area and lock the blade open. And he designed that with the idea of changing one part and turning it into a switchblade. So when they when they did the first ones, they were all manual. And then they came out with the second, uh, the second model, which was a switchblade. And uh, I know he did a couple of straight knife designs for him, and I know we worked with him on some other stuff. And uh, then they uh, contacted him and said they wanted him to design it out the front. And I don't believe Bill had ever built one. So uh, what he did was he went out and he bought everyone that he could get his hands on. And I think at one time he probably had about 20, 25, maybe, maybe more, and took them all apart, figured out how they worked, and looked at the the strong points and the weak points. And he had some, uh, there was one knife, it was uh, it was a production knife, nice looking knife. It was designed by some knife maker whose name I can't really remember, but that's kind of a good thing. But uh, as a production knife, you couldn't get the thing to function five times in a row. It was terrible. It was a nice looking knife and it appeared to be well made, but it just wouldn't work. And actually, one of the ones that he had that was one of the best ones was this plastic, horrible-looking piece of shit from from France, but the thing never failed. It opened and closed repeatedly. You couldn't get the thing, you know, to fail. That was one of the things with with the the out the fronts was working the mechanism. You know, after a while, the blade would just fail to either fail to go out or fail to return, usually fail to go out. And uh, that, he felt, was a... You know, that was something that needed to be 100% reliable. And one of the things that they were doing <clears throat> was they were building this with the idea of selling it to the government, but it was going to be a, you know, government contract knife, which they had already done with the 710. And uh, they had done with the, I think it was the 5000 was another one. That was a Axis Lock Auto. And uh, so he ends up uh, basically building the knife initially out of... Uh, layers of paper to show how the mechanism would work. And at that time, I think they were doing stuff. Uh, they were emailing blueprints and stuff back and forth. So I guess uh, he sent that stuff out to Benchmade. And I think they, they did some mock-ups. They built them out of plastic. And uh, he got those and they went back and forth. And finally, when they did the first batch of infidels, they did a, a cycle test. And they put it on a machine that would open and close it to see how many times it would open and close without failure. And uh, Jason was telling me they set the thing up on the machine and they went out for lunch and they come back and it was, they shut them, they shut the test down at 30,000 cycles. The thing never failed. And uh, that was the story behind the infidel. You know, to, to his credit, the access lock and the infidel are completely groundbreaking mechanisms. And, you know, the, the access lock would go on to, uh, sorry, would be going to be a standby 
mechanism for for Benchmade. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands, probably a million knives have been made with the access log at this point. Well, I know uh, at one time, I think he was telling me, I think it was around 80 or 85% of every knife that was in their catalog had an access lock mechanism in it. Because it, the thing is, it worked for manual or automatic. I mean, it, it was it was a it was a really you know universal mechanism for that. And it's it's so it's it's far out because so so few people in the modern day connect that you know with with him, which is you know gravely unfortunate. Yeah, you know, that was that was the thing because when he, you know, when he passed away, he had been pretty much out of the custom knife world for about twenty years. And at the time he came out with the Axis Lock, he was kind of at the pinnacle of his career. I mean, he was in high demand, and his knives were bringing a lot of money. And he he had a backlog; he couldn't he just couldn't keep up with what he was making. And uh, he made a smart move because he realized he couldn't go on forever working at that pace at his age. And you know, he was diabetic; he had some health issues, and he had asthma too, which that's wonderful if you're a knife maker and you're grinding blades, but. Uh, but uh, no, he uh, he he made the right move with the uh, with the access lock. He as I'm as I'm sure that you know that, but the the patent had expired for Benchmade to use the access lock. So now there's a lot of people using that. I mean, if uh, you know, if, if only there was some way to to let him know that that it's just it the mechanism continues to be useful. You know, much much beyond Ben and good for Benchmade, but much beyond Benchmade, it, it continues to be used in, in knives all over the place. Probably the only other mechanism that's flourished like that in the custom knife world was uh, the, the, the liner lock. I'm trying to think of who uh, was the guy. That Walker. Michael Walker. Yeah, yeah Michael Walker. You know, he patented the, the name on that. And of course, that concept had been around for quite a while. They used to use it on Boy Scout knives and electrician's knives years ago, but he took it and kind of reinvented it for, you know, for custom knives, but that's probably the only other thing that's had such a, a large impact on uh, the knife world. I, yeah, I would, I'd have to totally agree with that. I know Chuck has, has, we've talked about this before, but he, he echoed what you said that back in the day that um when you, when you'd go to a show, a knife show with Bill, it was like you were, you were with a rock star. People just wanted to talk to him and ask him questions and be around him. Yeah, he hated doing that. <laughs> oh did he really yeah he was not he was not a people person he was not a party guy he just wanted to stay home and make knives and you know he knew he realized that going to the shows and doing that was part of the, part of what he had to do but he was not a he was not a socializer although he would uh he was fine if he had a bunch of guys at his house that was the whole different thing but to go to a knife show and try to socialize with people it was he did it, but he he always told me he hated doing hated doing the knife shows. Did it because because he, he had to right because you you yeah. have to go sort of put put a face with the name and and shake hands kind of thing. So having people over at the house, how did that go? T- tell me a little bit about about the gatherings. What what were those What were those called? What what you guys What you guys do over there? <laughs> well, we a lot of it was just sitting around talking about knives and what would work and you know, different knife steels, different mechanisms, how to improve something. And then uh, I'm not sure when he started. He started having like a little get together and they'd uh, they'd light up the forge and go out and hammer on some steel. He'd, you know, have a little bit of a hammer in there. And I know he had, they used to have a knife show in Rhode Island. They called it the Rhode Island Radiator Show because the 
guy named Bob Black who owned Rhode Island Radiator was the, the one that sponsored it. He was a kind of a collector and he, you know, he used to sell some knives right in his radiator shop and they, uh, they rented the, uh, the Varnum Armory over in East Greenwich. And I think that was where they had the first one. And so after the, after the, the, the show at the Armory, Bill, you know, invited a few of us over to his house and basically everybody hung out and had a beer and he, you know, he cranked up the forge out there. He had a coal forge that he was working on at the time. And, uh, you know, everybody went out and played around and tried different things. And I think uh, one guy was out there hammering on a piece of steel and kind of got it forged out the way he wanted it. And I'm trying to think of who it was. I don't know if it was Norm Bardsley or J.D. Smith. I think it was Norm Bardsley. I think he was there. And he said, come on, let's go in the shop and I'll show you how to grind that thing. And it, was, it wasn't like it was a, any kind of an organized thing. It was a very ad hoc uh, get together and everybody was kind of doing their own thing. But you know, there was a lot of a lot of ideas being thrown around and a lot of people learning how to do things. So of course, so that would be the the New England switchblade movement or the New England switchblade school or eventually. And you would keep company with some people that would go on to do pretty pretty amazing things, yourself included. Yeah, there was a, there was a very small handful of us really. It was uh him and Jason, myself, Ralph Selvideo, J.D. Smith, uh, a guy named Bill Sandin, uh, Steve Hill, who now lives down in Texas, but he was living up in New Hampshire at the time, that were, that were primarily, auto, you know, got into making automatics, uh, you know, that would come to the house and, you know, throw ideas around. And uh, another guy named George Daly also. And Bill would, you know, take a lot of guys aside and say, okay, you know, you're making a good knife, but this is how you can improve it. And uh, he'd help us all out and didn't want to give everybody too much information. I remember I wanted to, when he, when I first wanted to learn how to do file work, I thought I was going to get like a file work class, you know? So he shows me a few basic ideas and he says, okay, you're on your own. He goes, take this stuff and work with it and develop your own patterns. He goes, I don't want you copying what I'm doing. He says, you, you develop your own style. And uh, that was the kind of teacher that he was. He, he, he would, uh, he'd show you the basics and get you started. And, uh, I know once I got into doing the file work for a while, he was, he was doing detail work with a hammer and chisel, you know, engraving, engraving tools. And, uh, so he, he gave me a few pointers and showed me how to do that. And actually, I think he gave me an engraving chisel to use. And so I started doing that by hand. And, uh, then I discovered a Graver Max, which made all the, all the difference in the world and the ability to get things done especially with the materials we work with, uh, you know, a lot of the tools, steels and stuff. And I do a lot of stuff with titanium. I do my, all my back bars and my liners are all titanium. And uh, early on, I used to make the, the back bars out of O1 tool steel and heat treat them because they had to be spring tempered. So you'd have to, you'd file work them and then heat treat them. And then you'd have to go back in and hand work all the file work with sandpaper and stuff to get all the scale off of it. And, that was when after that I discovered I could do it with uh, six ALV titanium, which is spring tempered. So that made life a lot easier. That was how the whole thing kind of got started. And it was very, uh, it was kind of very informal, but he, he taught a lot of people in a lot of different venues and they took it and ran with it. And uh, you could, you could definitely see the influence, you know, that he had because uh, not so much that anybody copied exactly what he did, but, you could see a definite similarity in styles. So these these guys that would that would hang out and 
and be at uh, be at Bill's shop. These, you know, some of them would stay in New England. Some of them would would move on throughout the years. Would you ever you collaborate with any of these guys and, and work on projects together or you just kind of you saw each other at Bill's and that that was sort of the, the once a year meetup or how did that work? Uh, actually, the only one I really ever collaborated with was Bill. We did uh, we did that Valkyrie thing. But uh, collaborations are tough because if you're not really working hand in hand with a guy, you know, you're trying to figure out who's going to do what and uh, it can get very, very time consuming. And, you know, a lot of people just, you know, we're, we're hermits that, uh, you know, we keep ourselves in our shop and listen to music and make knives and drink coffee and don't bother anybody, you know, and it's tough to, a lot of times it's tough to, to work with another person. I know you hear about a lot of knife makers that'll take on an apprentice and train them. And I couldn't do that. I just don't have the temperament for it. I'm not a, I don't think I'm a good teacher. I mean, if I've told a couple of people, if you want to come over and hang around here and watch me work, that's fine. But don't talk to me and don't ask me questions, you know, <laughs> because it, it gets to be very distracting. I had somebody in here oh, about a month ago, he was over here for something else and I'm trying to get something done. He's talking a mile a minute and, you know, I had to do something and I had to actually, I had to weld something up and I started to weld it up and realized I picked up the wrong welding wire. So I had to go back and remove all the weld that I just put on it. And, you know, that, that's the kind of distractions you don't need when you're doing stuff at this level. It, it requires, there's a lot of concentration and uh, it's like any, any distraction can screw things up. I know when I used to stop up and see Bill a lot of times, he'd say, look, you know, get out of here and come back tomorrow because I'm in the middle of doing something. I don't want to talk. I don't want any visitors, you know? I mean, he wasn't rude about it or nothing. He just said, look, I'm, you know, I'm in the middle of doing this. I can't, I can't be distracted right now. I got to get this done. And, uh, you know, I understood where he was coming from. So, cause I'd never call him up. I'd just stop up. And he was right around the corner. I'd usually stop there on the way home from work or something. But, uh, no, as far as collaborations, uh, never really, Never really got into it. I got one guy now that we're him and I are tossing an idea around about doing something. But you know that that level of concentration that that's an important thing that I think uh, I hate to say it, but I think in this in this modern world, I think we've we've all lost a certain amount of of hyper concentration just because of technology and and everything. So I, I think that's totally totally reasonable to just be like, you know what, I got to focus on this. Go away. Like the thing that blows me away is when I look at some of these like old 1800s Sheffield knives. And I look at the intricacy that goes into these things. And these things were all done by hand with files and crude tools and crude saws. You know, very, they, you know, I don't know. They, I don't even know what they had for magnifiers back then. I don't know how the hell these guys could even see what they were doing with some of the stuff that's so small and intricate. You know, the amount of concentration that it took to do something like that and the amount of dedication, you know, they, they sure they sure couldn't have been doing it for the money. They had to be doing it because they loved it, you know? Yeah, I can't imagine they were getting rich off of doing some of this stuff, especially since, you know, they were probably working for somebody else and then that guy sold it and then Sheffield. What, what, what do you, you, are you taking inspiration from Sheffield work or just enjoying old cutlery? Uh, I, get, I get a lot of influence in what I do by looking at older stuff that's been done. I just got done finishing a, a knife... Uh, that was based, Bill had an old, we think it was a Spanish design folding knife, long, slender design, uh, probably about a six inch blade, uh, 
maybe an inch wide at its widest point of where the blade folds into itself. And uh, a little on the crude side, but just nice lines. And I had taken a prof- profile off of that years ago. And I've made several knives over the years that were based on that profile. I just did another one. And uh, I just, I like the I like the lines. I like the looks. Uh, a lot of times I'll look at a lot of the old Sheffield stuff and I'll just get an idea from that on, on a design profile or something like that. That's a lot of what I... I don't try to ever replicate anything that, that somebody's done or, you know, design copied exactly, but you know, it's like Bowie knives. I mean, there's a million of them out there and they're all different, but they're all got the same characteristics, you know, you know, it's a classic design. It's like an Italian switchblade stiletto, you know, design. That, that's a classic design. That's never going to go out of style. A- any, any inspiration from local new England cutlery history or, or, or just, uh, not really. Uh, the only, let me see. Uh, Bill Pitt used to, I used to get a lot. I keep referring back to Bill, but he uh, he had a big influence on what I did, but he was always picking up a lot of antique knives. He did a lot of, a lot of shows for a while. And that uh, at that time, before the stuff became highly collectible, he used to, he used to find stuff in junk boxes all the time. But he had something that he picked up that was called a penny knife. And it was a very long, slender, straight folding knife. Uh I don't know why they called it a penny knife, but he found a picture of it in some historical book, and they figured it was made around the time of the Revolutionary War. And the body of the knife was all metal. Uh, the one that he had uh, looked like the it looked like the, the the body of the knife and the blade were probably made out of wrought iron because uh, you could see you could almost see a grain or a texture of the steel. It definitely wasn't Damascus, and. Uh, you know, actually, I, that was another one that I took a profile off of, and I've made made several uh, replicas of that. Some of them I've done. Uh, actually, I made uh, made several. Made the body out of uh, an old Damascus shotgun barrel with the uh, you know the Damascus blade, something that would be hardenable. But uh, most of the knife history that I've seen in Rhode Island kind of came from imperial and uh, colonial cutlery. You know, they were in the they were in the knife business for years. And, I think they uh, they ended up closing shop. I think it was two thousand and four. Yeah, I remember. I remember Colonial Cutlery. They used to do those um, the paratrooper knives or the, the the shoot knives, sort of like a switchblade shoot yeah, knife. I had, I had a, a case of a dozen of those things when I was in the Air Force. I got them from a guy in supply. Wish I still had them. They were good trading material for a while until they ran out. Yeah, those those were pretty cool. Actually, I, I definitely I had a couple of those in, in my collection for for a while. Um, I think they were the Slightly, I think probably a little more, little more modern version with the like the grooved ABS handle and the slide safety. Yeah, these were uh, fluorescent orange handles. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you drop them at night and they're they're still glowing. As far as knife shows go, was was there one that that stood out in particular? I, I know I wanted to ask you about SwitchCon. Yeah, that was uh, that was actually the first real big show that I ever did. When I when I first got into it back in the early nineties. We were doing the local uh, Northeast Cuddlery Collectors shows. And at that time, you know, it, it's a nice club and they've advanced quite a bit. It's a kind of a totally different organization now than it was back then. But back then it was basically a bunch of old guys trading rusty jackknives. That's kind of what it was. I mean, there were there were a couple of custom makers there and there were some guys selling, you know, modern, modern stuff. But primarily it was a bunch of, you know, rusty jackknife guys. That's kind of what it was. And of course, we showed up with switchblades and 
they didn't like us at all. <laughs> but uh, we, we did a few of those shows, and I really had a problem. Uh, I couldn't sell anything. The stuff I was making, I was trying to make something that was a, I figured it would be a nice usable knife, something you could put in your pocket and carry every day and use, and it was a switchblade. And uh, a little on the beefy side, I think the early ones I made, I made the blades were about three sixteenths of an inch thick, and, you know, they would design the thing to, you know, for some heavy use. And, uh, you know, I was, they were selling off and on. I really, I really had a problem selling the things. I think I did some trading with a couple of them, and so I, I kind of got out of it for a while. I was too busy doing other things, working, and I was doing a lot of gunsmithing, and I was sh still shooting competitively at the time. And uh, then I got a call from a guy. Uh, he'd opened up a knife shop in Charlestown. It was called Cove Cutlery. And he said he heard I made custom knives. And I says, yeah, well, I, says, I haven't done anything in a while. I don't know if I'm going to again. And he kind of twisted my arm into, into building him a knife. And uh, that was what kind of really got me back into it again. And uh, I'm trying to think of, uh, I think we might have day tripped to a couple of New York shows in the late, in the late 80s. Well, the late, uh, no, this would have been the late 90s. And uh, so Bill said, uh, Irv, guy collected the, that he knew, a guy named Irv Lehman out of Florida was putting on a show in Miami, it was called, going to be called SwitchCon 1. And he said, if you're interested in coming, he goes, and I think you should. He's, I'll get you, you, know, you can get a table down there. I said, all right. I said, let's go. So I went down there with a couple of knives, and that was my first exposure to a, to a big a big time knife show. And it was it was a real eye opener. It was very interesting. I, uh, I went down there with two automatics, and I ended up selling both of them to two different dealers. And uh, the thing that I really liked about it was, Irv had a real, he was a real patron of the arts. He, he had a lot of respect for the makers. Uh, one of the things that he did, because uh, it was a two-day show, it was a Saturday, Sunday show, was Saturday night, uh, him and a bunch of the dealers took quite a few of the makers. I don't know how, I want to say there were 20 makers maybe. And he took us all out for dinner and took us to some big high-end steak restaurant. And, you know, the way it was funny because when he got all done, he got the bill and he says, all right, you handed the dealers. You guys split this up because you the guy. You guys are paying for it. <laughs> but he was. Uh, he figured that the makers didn't get the didn't didn't really get the respect that they uh, that they deserved. You know, they uh, a lot of a lot of the dealers just looked at us as a source of revenue, and that was about it. And of course, whenever you're selling a, a a deal or a knife, there's always a lot of bargaining going on, and you know they want to buy it cheap, and you're trying to get as much money as you can for it. You meet in between somewhere, but. Uh, that was a very, uh, a very interesting show. That was the first time I really saw any big money changing hands for knives, and that was what really opened my eyes. And then uh, I think it was the following year I did the first uh, blade show in Atlanta, and that was uh, that was mind boggling. I walked in the door down there and looked around. The place was so big and so spread out. It was like where do you start? It was amazing, and there was so much stuff in there to look at. I mean. It was a three-day show, and you could have spent three days just walking the floor, looking at tables, and still not have seen everything. But uh, I did that show for about ten years straight. And that sounds right. Blade Show is a a, a massive event, um, though certainly not as not as focused as as what would sound like SwitchCon was, which is really neat to just have a Switchblade only show. That's that's far out. That that needs to probably happen again so, sooner than later. 
Yeah, I don't know if that'll. Uh, I don't know. If, I don't know if Irv will ever do one again or not. I'm sure he must be getting on in years. He's uh, he's probably pushing eighty years old. I would think. I know he was older than I was. So, but. Uh, and then, so you went. You went with Bill to SwitchCon, and and you you were both there with knives. Yeah, yeah. Me and Bill, Jason went down there. Uh, I believe Ralph Salvideo came. Uh, I think that was it. It was just the three of four of us. That's that's fun. That's cool. I mean that. Mu- I mean I I go to shows now with with maker friends, and um, it's always fun to just go to shows and uh, and do the experience. I enjoy it. Uh, I can imagine it must have been about the same. Just kind of going with your friends, kind of seeing what it's like. Well, especially for the first time around for me, because this was all new territory for me doing a, you know, doing this this level of a knife show, and it was a real nice. Uh, hotel that they had it and actually they filmed some episodes of miami vice right in that hotel yeah it was it was interesting see you mentioned earlier that you have uh an an ffl and um and that jogged my memory um to ask you about uh about gun knives yeah i've made a couple actually actually i've built three Way this kind of started off, I've I've been approached a couple of times over the years to build one, and I always kind of shied away from it because I knew if I got into it, it was going to be an all-consuming project, and I was going to put a lot of time into it. So I always kind of like, yeah, well, I'll give it some thought, but I just had other things I was working on, and it was one of these things where I was going to have to clear off the bench, and that was the only thing I was going to have to think about for quite a while. So anyway, uh my second wife had passed away, well, it's five years ago now, but uh, I was met this woman, and I was going to ask her to marry me, and uh, so one of the friends of mine that I know through the knife club used to have a jewelry shop, so I told him, I said, I'm looking for an engagement ring, have you got anything? He says, oh, yeah, I got a bunch of them, so I stopped over to his house, and we went through everything, and I picked out something, and of course, he says, oh, he says, you got a good eye, you picked the best one I got, and I'm thinking, yeah, okay, here we go, you know? I said, so what's this going to cost me? He says, well, if you had to go out and buy it, you'd probably spend ten or $12,000 on it. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, Christ, you know. He says, but I don't want any money. And I says, all right, what do you want? He goes, I want you to build me a gun knife. I says, okay. So, you know, the die was cast. I was, I had, now, now I had to build one. So I says, well, it's going to take a while. He goes, well, I'm not in any hurry. So it's a, you know, first of all, you got to, you got to come up with a concept for it. And what I had seen over the years, I didn't want to make. A lot of guys will build, they'll build a buoy knife and they'll put like a black powder barrel on top of it, something like that. There's a guy that, a guy named Bruce Bump who does phenomenal gun knives. I mean, this guy's a genius. I've seen some of the stuff, the pictures and stuff of stuff that he's done. And it's just, uh, the guy's a master. But anyway, uh, I, and, and he doesn't do the buoy knife with a barrel on the top of it. He does stuff that's a lot further advanced than that. But anyway, I wanted to build something, you know, that was a folding knife, you know, with a firearm built into it. So I just, I had to, th- I had to give it a lot of thought. I designed a lot of stuff in my head before I even pick up a piece of paper. So I, I came up with a basic concept of what I wanted to do. And I started drawing and from the drawings, I made templates and from the templates, I, started trying to figure out what was going to work and what wasn't and then what materials I was going to use. And I was trying to come up with a look because I didn't, you know, I wanted something that was going to have kind of an original look. And I wanted, 
I kind of wanted it to look not so much in shape or size or configuration, but in the way it was finished to look more like a firearm than a knife. I mean, knives are usually bright and shiny and a lot of white metal on them and stuff. Not white metal, but pop metal. But I mean, you know, things are shiny, you know, highly polished or bright. And I wanted something that was going to be blued. Uh, I wanted some color case hardening on it. I wanted, uh, I wanted to use wood scales. It would be checkered like a handgun. And once I figured out what I was going to make, then I started, you know, started making hard templates and figuring out what I was going to do and start making. I spent a lot of time making parts. And of course, then I had to come up with a, with a concept for how the firearm end of it was going to work. And once I got all of this done, then uh, I spent about a year building three of them. The reason I built three was usually when I, when I build something that's way out of the norm, a lot of times I'll build a pair of them in case I screw something up, I've got a backup. And in this case, that was a reason for that. And then I thought, you know, I might as well build three of them. That way, even if I screw one up, I'll have one for sale. And uh, turned out I didn't have, I didn't screw any of them up, and I, I ended up with three of them. But uh, it was a, uh, it's a fairly large knife. The blade was, I believe, six and three quarter inches long. It was a long clip point blade. The uh, body of the knife was all hot blued steel. The barrel was Damascus, and I, uh, I put a twenty, a rifle twenty two liner inside of the barrel. The, uh, the hammer, the trigger. Both of the bolsters were color case hardened. One of the bolsters releases the blade. Uh, the other bolster will actually move the barrel up and down so that you can load it. It's uh, like a tip-up barrel, like uh, almost like a single-shot shotgun, as you might say, something on that concept. And uh, So anyway, uh, he ended up with his gun knife, and I ended up with a diamond ring for my wife. <laughs> You know, I mean, that that works. That seems like uh, if both parties are, are happy with the outcome, you know, that that's a lot of what counts. Yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting it was an interesting project. Uh, you know, it was it was a lot of work. And like I said, I took I spent the, just about a year building them. And uh, I mean, yeah, that's that's a huge amount of time in, invested. Um, and it. it it sounds like you you still you still have one of them. Actually, I've still yeah I've still got one. I uh, actually I've still got I've still got two of them left. I haven't found a home for them yet. It's kind of a very a very narrow market. Uh, some people are afraid of them because it's a it's a cartridge gun. Uh, I had uh, one on consignment with a gun shop for a while, and the guy and the guy says, "Well, he says I'm afraid to have this in here because it's a switchblade and." I said, basically, it's a single-shot pistol. I said, it's uh, no different than having that AR-15 over there with a bayonet on the end of it. But uh, I got them both sitting in my gun safe, and at some point in time, I'll find somebody that's collecting those and find a home for them. Meantime, meantime, I take them out and play with them, wipe them off every once in a while. You know, It's kind of rewarding to look back on something you've made a couple of years ago because then you, you get away from it long enough that it hasn't, you know, it, you're not all you know, obsessed with what you had to do to make it. And you can almost look at it and appreciate it for what it is, you know, but at the time you get in the middle of building it and it's like, you know, I want to get this thing finished and it's, it's a lot of work and that's what it turns into. It turns into a job for a while, but. Uh, yeah. I'd imagine you kind of get not angry at a piece, but like you get frustrated. You're like, I just want to finish this and I want to move on to the next thing. Yeah. You almost sometimes you almost get in a hurry, which that's 
I have a tendency to work a little fast sometimes, but I have to slow myself down. There's some stuff you can make time on. You know, you can work fast on some things, but a lot of parts of it, you just really got to take your time and concentrate. And file work and carving gets like that. I'll Sometimes I'll spend a week just carving a back bar. But uh, that's what it takes to do it. So. As far as carving goes, I definitely, I know I ran into one of your, your carved pieces um, and in New York a couple of years ago, um, the a Punisher knife that you had done, um, which was a, a sizable piece, but did feature some of your more uh, artistic leaning carving uh, in the titanium. Uh, do you want to you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, when I first got into making tacticals, uh, of course, I started making right off the bat making switchblades, and then I found out that most of the tactical guys were afraid of switchblade mechanisms because they wanted, they figured they were illegal and uh, they wanted something, they wanted a flipper. So I, but I continued to make them anyway. I still sold them, but uh, uh, of course, it's using more modern, more modern materials. Uh, the blades was CPM one fifty four. The rest of the knife bolsters, liner, back bar, kick spring. Were all titanium. Uh, some of them had uh, G10 Micarta scales. Some of them had carbon fiber. Uh, I'm not sure which one you saw, but uh, I wanted to come up. You know, I wanted to put some artwork on it, and I I didn't want to do the typical vine and rope work that I do on the art knives. I wanted to do something a little bit different, and I wanted to put a skull on there. And my artistic ability to draw and do stuff like that is you know, limited, let's, let's let's say. But I went on the internet and I figured I'd just start looking at skull designs and try to find something I thought I could replicate. And I found one that was on a military patch. Turns out it's the Punisher skull logo, but at the time I didn't realize that's what it was. So I copied that and pasted it and put it in a photo program and printed some out and played with the size and shape of it a little bit and kind of copied that and started carving that on the knives. And I did them on the bolsters so on some of them, I did both sides. On some of them, I only did one. And then I would do the background uh, in some kind of a texture. I know in some of them, I did uh, like a series of lines. I forget what it was on the other ones. It was a crosshatch design or something. And then uh, I would take the design and do like a, a, a half of the face of the skull, but stretch it way out, you know, deform it. It would look, uh, you know, distorted and carve that into the, the length of the back bar on the back. And because it were titanium, I could anodize, which would give it some contrast. And usually the uh, background would be a dark color or blue or something. And then the, the raised portion of the skull would just be a, you know, a hand rubbed finish in titanium. When the guy pulled that, that Punisher knife out at, at Nick's, I was, I was pretty blown away. I was like, whoa. I was like, I have, I've never seen anything like that. That is, uh, it's something else. I, I believe that one did have the carbon fiber on it. It was, uh, it was pretty neat. It had, it had, uh, a black blade with, uh, like a polished compound tip and it was a two-tone blue, uh, titanium skull, which was pretty far out. Yeah, that sounds about right. Those were, those were something else. So, I mean, you, so you did do, you did a series of those. Yeah, I did, uh, well, the first one I made had a, you know, four inch blade, which was typical, you know, that's kind of what people would be looking for. And I had this one guy, well, I had some pictures posted somewhere, and he, he says, gee, I'd like to order one of those. He goes, but can you can you make it with a longer blade? 
I says, well, how much longer? He goes, well, I don't know, you know, a little bit longer. That's a four inch blade. Uh, you know, maybe five and a half, six inch blades, something like that. So that ended up, that ended up being the model two. These I gave model designations cause I was uh, replicating the knife. And, uh, so I ended up making a larger version. He ended up buying, he ended up buying one of each. That was the funny part about it. It was all done and over with. And, uh, I think I've still got some parts laying around for those, but uh, I, don't know, I did uh, the tactical knives. I did, I think, I think I went, the last one I did was, I referred to as a model nine. And again, that was an ambidextrous switchblade. It was a totally different role, uh, release mechanism. It wasn't a bolster release. There was a, basically like a toggle, almost like a trigger on the back bar that would release it, but you could access it with either hand. I always figured after my, my first foray of uh, right-handed only switchblade mechanisms, and of course the guy at the, comes up to the table and wants to know if I got one in left hand, I figured after that I would, uh, if I was going to make any, they were going to be ambidextrous. That way everybody's happy. No, that that works. There's always that one guy. Where's, where's, I'm left-handed, so I get it. I'm always looking for left-handed watches. It's impossible. They just, you know, same thing. Left-handed switchblades, they're, they're rare. They're totally rare. Yeah, well, think of it as you know, a lot of them that are that are uh, got buttons on them. I mean, they're probably a little bit easier to adapt to, but uh, you know, if they're left-handed, but it's not a hindrance. You just kind of you just kind of get used to it. But certainly, finding a left-handed switchblade is uh, is pretty neat. That that's all. That's always always nice. So these guys, you're you're building tactical knives. Um, we moved from the New England School of Switchblades, and some of these guys would go on to do these things. Um, tell me, uh, tell me a JD Smith story. Tell me a story about about JD Smith that that involves you, obviously. Well, I met JD at the first Rhode Island Radiator show that we had. And I think JD had been making knives for a while because I was looking at what he did, and I had never seen any forged Damascus fixed bladed knives like he'd made before. They were beautiful. Guy was the guy's a real Renaissance man. He's very, very, very talented. He makes his own Damascus, and he makes an incredible knife. And you know, we crossed paths over the years. And uh, I think he's uh, teaching, uh, you know, Damascus making knife making at some college up in uh, the Boston area. I'm not sure where. And uh, he's, uh, you know, he was one of the one of the tight knit. Uh, what did Bill used to call him? The uh, used to call it the Technical Folder Society. It was a tight knit group of of knife makers who built switchblades <laughs> to exacting tolerances. I think those were his. I don't want to say his exact words, but it was along those lines. But JD was one of them. But uh, he uh, he's made a lot of stuff. He did uh, he did forged and fire a couple of times, and uh, it was funny because the first time around they wanted. Uh, he was supposed to do a canister weld and he, he got bumped on a technicality because he was supposed to use two or three different kinds of steel and he only used one or two. I forget what the particulars were, but I was talking to him about that afterwards. I said, what it was like. He says, well, he was, they introduce a lot of outside stress, you know, for the drama of the, of the show. He goes, they want you to do, he says, you know, as well as I do, you can't forge your blade properly and do all that stuff in three hours. He goes, they want you to do, 13 hours work in three hours, but, uh, 
he says it's uh, it's extremely hot in there. I know uh, they do it in some old. Uh, he said it was an old factory complex in one of the New York City suburbs somewhere. But uh, when he did the second show, he ended up getting he lost out on that one because he, he almost passed out in there. It was so hot. He goes, it must have been about 130 degrees in there. And he was, he's no kid. I think at the time he did that show, he was probably 66 or 67 years old. He was just definitely, uh, definitely set up for a young man, you know, and he's in good shape too. He's, you'd never know what to look at him that he was that old, but, uh, the, uh, you know, I just recently, uh, I got some, I was working on, actually it's a knife I'm working on now. I got it to a certain point and realized I didn't have any, uh, Damascus that was going to work for the bolsters. So I'd contacted him and he made me up a piece and I just got that in uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I think his website name is Hammersmith, if I remember correctly. I like that, um, that name that, um, that you mentioned that, um, that Bill gave you guys. That's, that's pretty great. Well, the, the T- technical folder society. Yeah. Well, he, you know, the whole thing kind of came about, uh, you know, when he first started making switchblades, the general consensus back then was they had to be sloppy and they had to be oversprung in order to work properly. And a lot of times, the, a lot of the old Italians, you know, they'd be real tight, so they'd have to put a real hard spring in it. And a lot of the custom ones were kind of sloppy. Otherwise, you know, they wouldn't work properly. And he basically just uh, tightened everything all up and got the tolerances where they were supposed to be so that you could have a nice... A nice smooth running knife with no blade wobble, a nice tight lockup, and it didn't leap out of your hand when you opened it. And uh, that was kind of where the whole technical folder society concept came from, and that was where a lot of the the New England school of uh, of knife making came from. He's kind of the grandfather of the modern switchblade. I've heard I heard somebody refer to him that way, but. Uh, you know, if you look back at uh, even a lot of your older American switchblades, your old charades and stuff like that, they were, you know, right out of the box new. They weren't a real tight knife. They were kind of sloppy, you know, that was, but that was what it needed uh, needed for them to uh, to work properly. Right. Yeah. It needed that that space to, to for the mech to breathe. Now we're running uh, ball bearing pivots and stuff. I, that's something I started doing a few years ago. Uh, I don't know. I, I I know I didn't come up with the idea myself. There was somebody else that started doing something. I'm trying to think. It was uh, IKB something. Or oh, that. IKBS, Coma uh, Core Bearing IKBS. System. Yes. And uh, somebody had mentioned that, and so I, I I looked it all up and found a uh, not so much a drawing, but just a. Uh, I don't know, a picture or something of it, of how they were doing it. And it, it appeared what the guy was doing was taking the pivot hole and then counterboring, you know, countersinking it with a, like an 82 degree countersink and then dropping little ball bearings in around that opening and then, you know, putting everything together. And I looked at that and I thought, you know, you don't have much stability on the blade because everything is real close to the pivot. And what I ended up doing was I built a, a cutter that was like a fly cutter and had a pivot, had a uh, a pilot on it, so I could go into the pilot hole, and basically machine a bearing race right into either the blade or the liner, or depending on what I was making, if I had enough material. And in some cases, I would do it on both, and that gave me a trough, you know, to put the ball bearings in. And uh, 
you know, I just fill it up with grease and, you know, set the bearings in and put it together. And it gave me a, you know, a bearing area that was about uh, three eighths of an inch in diameter instead of a lot smaller. And uh, they run very, very, very smooth. There's almost no friction. And that, that gives me the ability to cut way down to the kick spring pressure too. So, but uh, now there's people, you know, now they're actually making uh, pre-machined caged bearings that you can, uh, you know, use a counterbore and just uh, counterbore the blade or the liner or whatever, you know, whatever you're using. It depends if you're building a frame lock or not. And just uh, drop these caged bearings and it does the same thing. So, you know, the whole technology of that has moved forward considerably. That's all stuff that happened. Bill wasn't even aware that was going on at the time. I think I might have mentioned it to him, but uh, he was, ah, he's, I'll keep using shims. <laughs> I mean, hey, you know, knives on washers work just as good, you know? That's uh, a, a well-tuned washer knife can can beat a bearing knife. That's that's always true. I don't know. I, I, I would hesitate to say this, but, you know, at the same time, I think it's true that I think that modern knife making, at least for frame locks, has become... A, a bit more streamlined and, and there's more information out there than ever has been before. Whereas I think it, it's always been a little bit harder. And especially when it comes to switchblades, I, you know, I know that's what we're talking about. Switchblades have never been an, an easy thing to find out about. If you ask the right person, certainly, but there's not a lot of information out there. What I find is you have a lot of different people building switchblades, but they're all using, you know, different mechanisms. And even mechanisms that are very similar, they execute it in a different manner than somebody else would. So there's uh, there's a million variations on, uh, you know, just a typical uh, Italian switchblade where you push a button and the blade opens up. I mean, that works, the way that works is works on like a seesaw concept. You know, you push the button down and the button's attached to uh, of like a full, not, not a fulcrum, but, you know, it's like a seesaw thing. You, you push down on it, it comes up on the other end, and uh, there's a pivot in the middle for the thing to pivot on. And uh, they execute that in a lot of different ways. I know Bill was trying to get away from that, and he came up with something he called a uh, latch release. And basically, it uh, got rid of the button, and the whole thing just turned into a, a piece of steel that worked. It did the whole thing, and it gave him something else to carve on. A lot of wanting to get away from that because that button really that button signifies to the public that it's a switchblade. When you see that button in the middle of the handle, they go, "Oh, that's probably a switchblade." So I mean, it's smart to to try to change that and and develop something that conceals it a little bit, you know. Which is exactly that that bolster is exactly that that bolster release. You know, if you don't know that that's there, how, how are you gonna? Most most people, if you hand it to them, they they don't know unless they're knife people or or you show them. You know, you you were mentioning earlier the. Um, Cove Cutlery. So you you did have a local knife shop um, at a, at a point. Yes. Um, was was that ever a point of uh, of of meeting for you guys, or did, did that ever play into any part of it? Like I would imagine that just sort of being the other default like hangout spot. He we never had any meetings or anything down there, but he used to he did a lot to promote a lot of knife makers uh, as far as he would, you know, he would have this stuff in there and show it around. He had a, a website and I think we did a couple of videos. I think I was in one of them of, you know, different people, you know, showing their knives and showing how they worked. Uh, he put on a knife show down there. It was, it was a once a year thing for a while and he didn't even charge anybody to come. He was doing it primarily 
as uh, advertising for his shop. And he put out maybe maybe a dozen tables out front in a tent, and uh, you know everybody would set up, and everybody out everybody was out there making money, and he wasn't selling anything in the shop. <laughs> but uh, I think what kind of killed him was the internet because uh, the the building that he was in, he had a lease on, and you know, he was telling me, he goes, I don't know. He's, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to close up shop. He goes, why is that? He says, well, he's, I'm doing 90% of my business on the internet and I don't get enough foot traffic in here to even pay the rent. So, uh, he ended up, I said, what are you going to do? He's, I'm just going to close up and work out of my house. He goes, cause he was, uh, he was set up with several companies where you could go on his website and order a knife and he got paid for it. And the, the company sent you the knife. I mean, he never even touched the knife. That's how a lot of that stuff was working. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't that he, you know, and he had his, he had all of his custom stuff on the website too that he had in there, but, uh, but he, uh, he flourished for a while until, uh, like I said, the internet put a hurting on him and, uh, but he had a guy coming in there that was offering a, a knife sharpening service so people could come down there with their kitchen knives and stuff and drop them off and pick them up a few days later. And yeah, he, uh, he did a lot in a lot of different areas to try to help things out like that. Yeah. It's good. Like a, like a trunk show, you know, it's, it's important to sort of keep, keep the community together yeah. like that, you know, whatever can be done. So as, as far as knife, um, designs, primarily obviously switchblades, but I mean, ever, um, slip joints, ballet songs, um, straight knives. Um, what am I missing? Well, I've built some straight knives. Uh, I built a few slip joints just, most of the uh, those little penny knives were slip joints, and I built a few slip joints over the years just kind of to break up the monotony, so to speak, try something a little bit different. And uh, I don't know how many straight knives I've made, maybe fifty. I built uh, I built some large Bowie knives for a while. I built uh, some of those that had a secondary blade coming out of the back of the handle that was also a switchblade. Actually, I think I told you about uh, my Facebook page. If you go on there and look in the folder under pictures, and then there's another folder of knives that I've made. I think uh, you can see those in there. A Bowie knife with a switchblade. Yeah, why not? That's awesome. Yeah, because I had a website for a while, and it was just, to me, it was more trouble than it was worth. Because I, I never really did any sales on it, and it was uh, more as a place to showcase knives. And then it got to the point it was outdated, and I couldn't put any pictures on there, and my grandson had initially set it up for me and he wasn't doing that kind of stuff anymore. So I just, uh, I let the thing run out and shut it down. I started using Facebook. It was a lot easier to put pictures up there and, you know, gives me, it gives me enough exposure. So. Yeah, it, it works. It's definitely, there's a lot of people who, who use that well for, for business. Yeah. There's a lot of face, there's a lot of Facebook knife groups out there. You know, once you start joining one and one thing leads to another and you, your name gets spread around and you start, you get a little bit of name recognition. And I find if I post pictures of stuff that I've just finished, I get a lot of hits on it. And occasionally somebody even buys something. So, you know, that's, that's not bad either. Right. That's, that's good. I know there's uh, I think Instagram and a few of those other things. I don't even get involved with that. I'm, I'm too old to learn all that stuff now. There's yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different social medias out there and Instagram and Facebook though, have certainly been, um, there's a lot of people on Facebook. Like, I'll, there's a considerable amount of people on there. I know, um, I know a lot of a lot of makers do really well on there. A lot of a lot of active 
um, collectors and, and just people in general just talking about knives on there. If there was any knife that you haven't made and that you could make, what what would it be? If, if you could just make anything, like any style, size, what what would it be? I don't know. To be honest with you, <laughs> that's 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 totally fair. Okay, all right. Uh, usually, uh, it, it's tough for me to just sit down and make a decision on what I want to do. A lot of times, I'll get an idea about something and I'll make a few notes and I'll see something that piques my interest, or I'll say, "I like, I kind of like the looks of that, but I, I'd like to change it a little bit." And oh, that's a nice idea, or you know, I mean, what really kind of got me started making knives as an adult was the Rambo movie. You know, when I went to, when I saw the, when I saw first blood, I, you know, I said, I got to make that. I got to make a knife like that. And actually the first one I made, I made uh, out of a piece of 4140 with a bandsaw and a file. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Get it, get uh, it done. Why not? Yeah, I turned the handle up on a lathe and I think I made the sheath out of Kydex or something back then. I don't know if I had a leather sheath or a Kydex sheath now that I think about it, but that was, you know, it's, you see something that piques your interest and there's so many different designs out there and there's so many different knife makers doing different things and, you know, the the art end of it is all over the place. But uh, usually I get inspired by old stuff. I'll look at something and say, I kind of like the looks of that, but I think I'd like to do this version of it or... You know, you look at something and try to figure out how to make it work as a bolster release, you know, as far as the shape of the knife and how you're going to fit everything in there. That's what people don't think about when they look at a, a switchblade is what's going on inside of it as far as you have to have room for the blade to close. You have to have room for the kick spring to stack up, and then you got to have room for the back bar on the other side of it. And, of course, in my case, the back bar is part of the mechanism, so that's got to have room to move. And you know, there's a lot going on. Oh yeah, for for sure. the The mechanics of of a uh, of a knife like that are, are often beyond um, a lot of people, and and some makers in, in, in equally. You know, it's a uh, it's a lot to pack in there, uh, especially you know when when you get to uh, something like a dual action or or anything like that, where there's like George Daly. We you mentioned that name. Um, before he would he would go on to make uh extremely dressed up switchblades yes he's a very very talented maker his background is as a jeweler uh he worked for some big company i think as a jeweler he he you know he was that's what he did and he applied all that talent to knife making and uh the guy's a he's a master craftsman you know some exquisite knives very very you know dressed up some of his knives like inset with diamonds in them he gets into a lot of stuff with the precious stones i've done a little bit of that but that's that was never my that was never my thing you know what would you say would be your your favorite material to work with like if you if you had to dress a knife for yourself and you were going to put if you were going to put a material on the scales what what would that be for scale material i like ivory ivory pearl depends on what the knife is going to be if it's going to be Something you're going to put in your pocket and carry every day, that's one thing. If it's going to be something, you know, if you're building a, you know, a high-end art knife, I mean, you know, to me, you can't beat black lip mother of pearl. I mean, I think that stuff is gorgeous. Real nice white white pearl or gold lip pearl that's got some good color and some good depth to it is, you know, outstanding. What about uh, what about for synthetics? You, you like carbon fiber, micarta? 
I've grown to like carbon fiber. Uh, when I first started, I was a little scared to use it early on because the stuff was very, uh, you know, you definitely don't want to be breathing that shit. And, it, and it, when it grinds up, it turns into a haze. And I've got a pretty good dust collector system in my shop. And whenever I work, work it, I work it wet. But uh, one of the things I didn't like about carbon fiber is it seems like everybody builds a knife, puts a high polish on it, which while that looks nice, it makes the knife slippery. And if, if it's a knife you're going to use, that you don't want a slippery handle on it. I mean, if you're just going to, you know, if it's an art knife and you're going to stick it somewhere and look at it, that's fine. And uh, I discovered a way to texture the carbon fiber so that it still looks good, but it has enough texture that it's not going to slip out of your hands. And uh, I've had very good results with that. I don't know uh, that uh, Punisher knife that you picked up. I don't know if the handles, the scales on that were smooth or if they were textured, you know, offhand? Ah, you know, shoot. I don't, I've got pictures of it. I don't remember off the top of my head. I'd have to look at the pictures. Well, you have it with you or is it out in, out in Vegas? Well, we sold that one a bit ago, but I, I've got pictures of it, I think, uh, somewhere. But yeah, no, that one, that one sold pretty, uh, that one sold pretty swiftly, actually. I think that, that, that was, uh, unto itself. So, um, People hadn't really seen anything like that. Yeah, I've had a little bit of interest in those again. I should probably make some more. But so many knives to make, so little time. <laughs> you know, I guess that's I, yeah, I guess that's true. They they say that, don't they? They say that. Well, that's the thing too. You know, when you get into a lot of these elaborate projects, you know, you look at something and it's it's not a two week or a three week or a two month project. It's something that turns into a year sometimes, and you know that's. You know, when you get to be my age, you start looking a year down the road. That's that kind, of, and it comes up quick. You know, it's, uh... yeah. I mean, that's that's true. Uh, having perspective is is important. Is what I'll, is what I'll take from that. I think you'd ask me once if I took on any uh, apprentices or anything, and I don't, and I haven't. But what I have done is, you know. I've run into the typical typical person. Oh, you make knife. You give you give lessons. I want to learn how to make a knife. And a lot of times, you get somebody in here. Not that I've done it, but I've talked to enough people that were interested in doing this. And what do you know how to do? Well, you got to know how to use the tools before you can use them to to make something. And when you got somebody that doesn't know how to run a lathe, doesn't know how to use a milling machine has never touched a belt sander before. There's a wide learning curve before they become proficient enough with that so that they're going to, A, not hurt themselves, and B, you know, not completely destroy what they're working on. But what I have done is I've had guys come in here that were already making knives and had an interest in doing it and had already taken it upon themselves to get rudimentally outfitted. And they were building some crude stuff. So what I would do is say, okay, you know, try doing this, try doing that. And maybe I'd spend 10 or 15 minutes and, you know, show them how to do something, give them some pointers. That I don't mind doing. But uh, like, you know, I've had people that, you know, wanted wanted me to give them lessons and, but yet they don't know how to do anything. I told one guy, I says, well, I says, the first thing you need to do is go to a trade school and learn how to become a machinist. That's what, if you're going to make switchblades and they make folding knives, if you want to do it right and you want to make something really nice, that's where you need to learn. That's where you need to start because you need to learn to use those those tools. And uh, 
a lot of people don't, uh, they think maybe I'm being a jerk about it, but, you know, if I didn't know how to be a machinist, I could never have done what I've done, you know, with, with the switchblades. So that's, uh, you know, I'm just speaking from what I was able to do. And, you know, that's, that's interesting that you say that, especially because it sort of, it echoes back a little bit into, into what I mentioned before about like having previous skill. Like you said, you were in the service, you, you know, you got some machining and some welding skills in and you spent time doing it and, and you followed up on it. And we, you know, I, I've certainly talked to a lot of, um, what I'd have to call like first generation knife makers, guys who just, you know, they didn't consider, you know, knife making a career until it was already a career, you know? Yeah. Those guys usually have like real world experience. Like they were in the service, they were in the trades, you know, they were doing machining or, or fabrication long before, you know, knives were going to be a thing. Um, and that certainly helped them on their journey to eventually be a full-time knife maker. And I think we don't see enough of that anymore, or we barely see any of it um, of people doing, doing trades or taking, taking, you know, debatably, I'll go ahead and say it like what we would consider now that blue collar, like labor, they don't take that as seriously anymore. And we certainly see a decline in, in manual skills like that. Well, you know, this is, uh, I mean, I can remember being in grammar school and having my fourth grade teacher tell the class in general, you guys got to go to college. Cause if you don't, you're never going to make enough money to live on. You know, you don't want to spend your life working in a factory or turning wrenches. I mean, you know, you're going to have to work for a living. You want to get a job where you can go to college and make a lot of money and not have to work hard. And that was the, that was the mentality back then. And that's what we had shoved on our, our throat. And today, look at all the people that are out there that have got four-year degrees or more that have got $50,000 in student debt and they can't find a job. But yet you get some kid, you know, I, I got a stepson who... Basically, he's got a GED. He didn't graduate from high school. He dropped out of school and back got his GED. He's going to uh, a tech school. He's getting his, uh, his, a, uh, getting his electrician's license, and he's working as an electrician's apprentice. And the kid is already making big money. I got another friend whose son is probably, uh, he must be in his early 40s. And... I don't want to say that the kid is a millionaire, but he's got his own plumbing business and he don't want for nothing. And he's got some really nice expensive toys. I mean, and working as a plumber. And those are the jobs that would, they would, those jobs were disgraced when I was in school. What do you want to do that for? You know, and we were pushed away from those jobs. I can remember going, being a junior in high school and going into the guidance counselor's office because we were getting the, the guidance counselor what do you want to call it? Pep talk. What do you want to do when you get out of high school? And I told the guy, I said, I have no idea. Oh, you should know what you want to do for the rest of your life by now. And I'm thinking to myself, and because I wasn't very outspoken back then, but I was thinking to myself, how am I supposed to know what I want to do? All I've ever done is live in a one horse town and go to a small school. I've never seen the world. I have no idea what's out there. And, you know, but they force college down these kids' throats to the point where you know, you've got a bunch of people out there with college degrees. That if they can find a job, a lot of times it's minimum wage. They can't find a job in, uh, you know, my generation went to college to avoid the draft. They were all uh, liberal arts majors, you know. But back then, college wasn't terribly expensive. Today, it's ridiculous. So, 
but I think, you know, getting back to the trades thing, I th- actually, I think it's starting to make a little bit of a comeback because they're starting to realize that, uh, you know, colleges and everything that's cracked up to be, it's, college is great. If somebody knows what they want to do when they've got the brains and they want to be a doctor or a lawyer, I think it's wonderful. But to just go to college because somebody tells you you're supposed to go and, they, and go to waste your time is, uh, I think it's foolish, but. Yeah, some exploratory time to figure out what, what a person wants to do, what a person's made out of, you know? I know we got, uh, you know, Groton Subbase not far from where I live, and they, uh, they're they always hurting for good help, you know, and because you got nobody out there, no kids with any any skills, and they get people in there. First thing you got to do is they got to train them. So, uh, you know. Yeah, I forgot about that. We I passed through there recently, just, just outside Mystic, where they have um... – they have that NCCA show there, but yeah, it was it was closed. I wanted to go check out the subbase. Actually, they have like a little museum there. It's pretty neat. That speaking of which, okay, that NCCA show uh, in Mystic is that something you still do or just oh, yeah. sort of sporadically? Uh, oh, okay. Yeah I, yeah, I do the two day show every year. The two day show has turned into a very good show. Although this year it's being canceled. I just got a email today from uh, one of the guys on the board of directors because of the coronavirus thing. They said that they're just going to cancel it this year. They're not even going to try to reschedule it. But uh, they uh, they used to have two shows in New York City, and those were the big those were the big shows in the Northeast. And when the knife laws got changed in New York City, and you couldn't have knives there anymore, or whatever exactly it was, they they moved one to New Jersey, they moved one to Florida, and then I heard the one that went to Florida didn't work out that well, and I haven't really kept up with it. But I know since that happened the attendance at the two-day NCCA show in Mystic has grown tremendously. We get a much better turnout now than we did 10 years ago. And I think that's got a lot to do with it. I, you know, the, that two-day show has kind of turned into the, you know, I don't want to say it's the biggest, but one of the, you know, more predominant uh, knife shows in, in the New England area, because there's not much up north. I think there's a, there's a gun and knife show they have at the Big E Expo in Springfield, you know, but uh, as far as just a regular knife show is concerned, the uh, the Mystic show has has gained quite a following. I want to say they got a I want to say they got 150 tables there now. I could be mistaken, but I know it's gotten pretty big. When I was growing up, I've been to that Marlboro show, the NCCA show, a couple times, but I haven't been to that Mystic show, and I can't even remember how long. Yeah, the Marlboro the Marlboro show is a is a is a fairly decent location. I know. Uh, Early on, they were trying different locations for the, uh, you know, for their other, I think they have four shows a year. And uh, the, they, they decided to just settle on the Marlboro location because it was uh, a better location. It had a pretty good turnout there. And it's centrally located. It's not far out of Boston. And it's not that far north for us. And it's not that far south for somebody in the main New Hampshire, Vermont area. So. Yeah, I think I must have met Chuck there when I was just uh just a kid and probably not even not even recognized who he was, obviously, at the time. But um I talked to him about that recently. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I met you in Marlboro in like the late or or, or mid two thousands and I probably had just no concept of who you were. Which is yeah, pretty Chuck funny. Another one of the new England makers. Actually he started off I think he was going to URI at the time. And he was working at Cove Cutlery behind the counter, you know, basically helping Ron out down there. That was where I met him. And I, 
I think when I met him, he wasn't even making knives yet. I think he was thinking about it. And uh, he started off real slow and just started making, you know, little fixed-bladed knives and neck knives and started making some folders. And he's been at it for, well, I want to say 20 years now, I guess. It doesn't seem like it, but it's been quite a while. But uh, he's uh, he's turned into a very proficient knife maker. He makes some very interesting stuff. Nice, clean work. Yeah, he does all right. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's far out to think back to, um, you know, just it's one of those moments in time or, or in, in history where you don't realize, you know, all these people are, are in this, this centralized location. And, you know, it seems like everyone's just sort of having fun, maybe goofing off a little bit. And then, you know, years later, decades later, it would turn out to be, you know, what it was and, and people would be who they are. It's pretty far out. You know, it's funny, but but it was almost like the Woodstock of knife making. You didn't realize what was going on at the time. It was just, it was a phenomenal thing that, that happened. And we weren't even aware of it at the time. It was just a bunch of guys getting together and making knives and, you know, changed the, the way a lot of things are done. You said you're sort of just, just kind of getting back into the swing of things. And, and um, so Facebook, Facebook is really where people should go to look at your look at your work and and to contact you if if so needed or, or you're not really taking custom orders you're kind of just building what you want uh i'm open to custom orders i find most of the time when somebody wants something they're in a hurry they want to buy something today you know so <laughs> but uh no i'm open to custom orders and and so the facebook facebook would be the best place to find that which is yeah, just be you, uh, to put in Richard Wright? Uh, Richard S. Wright on Facebook. All right, cool. Awesome. So if you're if you're interested in, in Richard's work, go check out his Facebook page. And uh and I'm sure this will probably not be the last time we will we will have you on on the podcast as this has been greatly informative and, and a and a good time talking about talking about old times. So I, I do uh I do appreciate you coming on and, and taking time to talk with us today. I, I really do. Well, you're quite welcome, and it's been a pleasure for me. I, I've enjoyed it. All right. Well, well thanks, Richard, and uh, we will talk soon then. Okay. You have a good night. And that will conclude Episode 26 of the Bladeology Podcast. I want to thank once more Richard Wright for coming on and talking with us this week. Make sure to check out his Facebook page where he has a great catalog of his previous builds. We will be back next week with our regular host lineup. Please remember, wear your safety goggles, tuck in those detent tracks, and thank a knife maker.